Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to the debut of the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment's PowerCast. PowerCast is a new bi-weekly audio program for those interested in the top conservative insight and analysis of energy, climate, and environmental issues. My name is Darren Bax, and I'm a Senior Research Fellow in Environmental Policy and Regulation at the Heritage Foundation. I want to thank you for listening as we discuss one of the most important environmental cases in recent memory, West Virginia versus EPA. On June 30th, the last day of the term, the United States Supreme Court released a 6-3 opinion in which it held that a 2015 EPA greenhouse gas rule, known as the Clean Power Plan, wasn't authorized under Section 111D of the Clean Air Act. It's been less than a week since the release of the opinion, so today we'll be discussing our initial take on the case. And I'm being joined by the following experts. Jeffrey Holmstead headed the EPA's Office of Air and Radiation from 2001 to 2005, longer than anyone in EPA history. He's one of the nation's leading climate change lawyers and heads the Environmental Strategy Group at Bracewell. Paul Larkin is a Senior Research Fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. And Katie Tubb is Research Fellow in the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment. So let's get right to it. First, Jeff, Paul, and Katie, thank you for being here. My pleasure. I'm honored to be invited, Darren. Thank you, Paul. So, so Jeff, what was the issue before the Supreme Court? What was the EPA trying to regulate and how? So, so first, let me just um, clarify that I, I was the head of the air office under the George W. Bush administration. So I, I was not involved in, the, in, in, <laughs> in, designing, in designing this rule. The, the 2015 um, Obama Clean Power Plan was, was remarkable because uh, EPA used a 40-year-old statutory provision that had only been used once or twice before that was clearly intended for a fairly narrow purpose and and they purported to discover in that in in that in that pr- provision the authority to to restructure the power sector and and I won't go into all the details of of the so-called clean power plan, but in essence, they determined, and, and this is probably correct, that the most cost-effective way to re- to make significant reductions in the U.S. power sector is to shift generation um, from coal plants to natural gas plants, and then more importantly, in their view, to renewable energy. And so they they came up with a very detailed scheme that 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 was designed to basically reduce the amount of coal generation that we that we get in the country and i think they you know they wanted to go from like 37% down to roughly 20% in uh, in in 10 years um, and so you know without going into a lot of the details or the mechanism that they used that's basically what they tried to do in this 2015 rule um, that was called the clean power plan and and what we're going to talk about today is why the supreme court had trouble with that so, so Jeff, the the Clean Power Plan, it, it didn't simply impose measures that would reduce pollution by causing the regulated plant to operate more cleanly. It, instead, it discouraged the plant from operating at all and reducing electricity production. So, to me, this was the agency basically saying to power plants, "Hey, we've got a great idea to reduce to reduce emissions. Your industry needs to die." Jeff, is this a fair assessment of the rule? 
Yes, that's probably a a bit uh, overstated because they only wanted about um, 30 percent of the plants to die. But, uh, yeah, that's they wanted to shut down about 30 percent of the coal fired capacity and then um, require companies to build new wind and solar plants to replace that capacity. So, Katie, the Clean Power Plan at issue was an attempt to shift electricity generation to renewable sources. What's your take on what the EPA was trying to do and what would have been the implication for electricity generation in the U.S.? Yeah, I think it's it's fair to characterize the Clean Power Plan as the centerpiece of the Obama administration's um, commitment to the Paris Climate Agreement. And certainly President Obama, followed up by President Biden, uh, we're going to continue that agenda. Uh, you know, President Biden's EPA has promised to follow up with their version of a clean power plan, depending on how this uh, decision from the Supreme Court um, jigged out. So, you know, I, I think that's kind of the, the big picture of what we're seeing. And as Jeff mentioned, you know, it, it, it attempted to take coal and eventually natural gas plants down to uh, a minimal part of the electricity sector and really ramp up renewables. And what we're talking about here is 60% of where Americans get their electricity. So it's not an insignificant uh, transformation of the grid. As far as um, what the implications are for that, you know, I think Americans just need to uh, think about what they did today that used electricity. And it's hard to get very far in your day before you realize, wow, I used electricity for that that and that. And so the the costs of this kind of policy really get down into uh, the daily lives of Americans. And we tried to model that here at the Heritage Foundation, first under the Obama administration's agenda, and then a more um, recent iteration of what it might have looked like under the Biden administration. And we get a 23% annual increase in household electricity prices and about $7.7 trillion in lost GDP under the Biden administration's um, agenda under their uh, commitment to the Paris Climate Agreement. So we're talking about uh, quite extensive impacts from a policy like this. And I guess the, you know, the flip side, when you talk about costs, you should always talk about, well, what are the benefits? And the, the purpose of this policy was, again, that bigger picture of climate policy. And, you know, no matter what you think about global warming, the uh, climate impacts were basically nothing. So we're talking about a lot of expense for pretty much no environmental benefit. Um, And I think we can also take one more angle at it and look at the reliability side of this, especially as we go into the summertime. And reliability is uh, very much a concern for the grid. And, you know, I think it's interesting if you go back and look at the Clean Power Plan discussions, the EPA didn't really do much meaningful conversation with other grid operators. Federal Energy Reliability uh, Commission, uh, the North American Energy uh, Reliability Corporation, these entities that are responsible for the reliability of the grid. And there were no meaningful conversations between EPA and these other grid regulators. And so, you know, I talk about $7.7 $7.7 trillion in lost GDP, but there are other costs in there, and I think reliability is one of them, um, that are a major concern. And so this uh, clean power plan or policies like it do have huge implications for energy policy and for the daily lives of Americans. Well, Katie, you know, the 
the energy sector and, and the grid, obviously, is, as you pointed out, so critical. The EPA is not an expert on energy. I mean, if they were, this is a pretty big deal what they're trying to do. And it's pretty clear that's a massive, the, the massive scope of what they were trying to do and just trying to kind of push something like this on its own. What's your take on that? Just them trying to push something so major. Yeah, well, I think that kind of gets into probably more of Paul's angle on this on the legal side of, you know, does the EPA even have the authority from Congress to do something like this? And I know we'll we'll probably get more into that in the discussion because that was a critical piece of what the justices discussed. Uh, But the short answer is the EPA did not have the authority to do this as given by Congress. And there's a lot of reasons for why that is so and why that's a good thing, uh, no matter what you think about the energy or climate side of this. So let's get into some of the legal details a bit. Paul, um, can you explain the holding of the case and the court's rationale? Certainly. But let me give you a couple of things as background. First, ever since Justice Scalia joined the court back in the 1980s, the court has shifted its focus, certainly in questions of statutory construction, from what is reasonable and what did Congress reasonably intend to what does the language of the statute actually say? The result is the court has to focus on the terms, the text, the phrasing, the grammar, the syntax, a whole sort of factors that you wouldn't consider if you were just looking at this matter as an old-fashioned common law tort problem. In a common law tort problem, you figure out what's reasonable and what's not. In a statutory interpretation context, yes, you'll want to see if your interpretation is reasonable, but you won't start with it. You look to see what the text of the statute actually says. And that's exactly what the majority in this case did. They looked at the text of the statute and they said the terms at issue here are fairly capacious But it's unreasonable to interpret those terms in the broad way that the EPA want. Let me give you just a practical common sense example. Suppose you're a parent in the greater New York City area and you have a teenage son or daughter who asks you if he or she can borrow the car to go to see a movie. And you say yes. And in the past, every time the teenager had driven the car to go see a movie, it had been in the local community, you know, perhaps in the Bronx, if you lived in the Bronx or perhaps in Yonkers. Uh, but on this case, in this case, what happens is the teenager takes the car and drives to Los Angeles to see the movie. Now, I think the parent would reasonably say, how could you possibly have thought that's what I intended for you to do? And the teenager's response would be, well, you said I could take the car to go see the movie. I just decided I'd rather see it in Los Angeles rather than in New York City. But that was within what you said. Something similar is going on here. Congress used the term system in the statute and a system of emissions reduction as a means of focusing the agency's attention on micro level technological changes that could be made to smokestacks and the like in order to reduce the amount of pollution that a smokestack or an entire plant let out into the air. The EPA decided that, well, we have a better way of, of reducing the amount of pollution that the factory puts out. We'll tell them that the factory has to shut down. 
Now, maybe the factory only, you know, was designed to close 30 percent of its capacity or maybe only 30 percent of the industry was supposed to be shut down. But it doesn't matter if the APA can pick 30 percent as the number. It can pick 90 or 100. But that's utterly unreasonable. That's not remotely what Congress had in mind for the term system of emissions reduction. And all that the Supreme Court said in this case is essentially the following. The EPA misread this statute by trying to go from whatever core meaning it has to a very, very peripheral meaning that is just unreasonable. Congress never told the agency to decide how much of the fossil fuel industry can survive and how much should be shifted over into green or similar types of energy. That's all that happened here. If Congress says it wants to go completely green and shut down all of fossil fuels, it has the constitutional authority to do that. It would be remarkably stupid for Congress to pass that law tomorrow and have it take effect the next day because it would shudder probably somewhere between two thirds and 90 percent of all the electricity generating plants we have. But Congress could do it. What the Supreme Court said is simply that's not how we read the statute because that's utterly unreasonable. It's like the teenager taking the car to L.A. rather than from the Bronx to Yonkers. Paul, that's great. Uh, so in the opinion, Paul, the, the court fleshes out something called the major questions doctrine. So how do you describe the major questions doctrine at this point? What, what is it? Well, the major questions doctrine is a way of interpreting statutes. It says that when an agency takes a term in a statute that has some rather mundane uses, as this term did, but tries to expand it to reach global consequences, the court is going to look askance on the agency's attempt to do so. I mean, for example, everybody knows that uh, football is a game. Everybody knows that baseball is a game. But is bouncing a soccer ball off your knee and seeing if you can do it 100 times in a row a game? Eh, maybe, maybe not. That's the problem Ludwig Wittgenstein discussed in the 20th century. Words have core meanings and words have meanings out at the periphery. What the Supreme Court has said is when you intend to regulate a major section of the economy or of public life, you have to show that the terms you're using that empower you to do this were at the core uh, of what Congress was doing in the statute. It's the problem of statutory interpretation. You're not, we're not going to let you regulate the entire economy um, based on some rather broad general term. And in fact, Paul, they, they actually say you need to have clear authorization for it. Once, once right. you know the major question. I think the way they they didn't immediately go to the statute, right? They said, what is it that the agency is trying to do here? Um, before they even got to the statutory language, and they said, is this a major issue? The percentage of the U.S. power sector, or the, the percent, percentage of electricity that can come from fossil fuels. And is that a major issue? And they talk about both the economic and the political consequences. And then they say, this is clearly a major issue. If EPA has authority to do this, 
we would expect that Congress would speak clearly to that. So EPA can only exercise this authority if Congress clearly gave them that authorization. And here they looked at the statutes for the reasons that John mentioned, and they said, well, you know, EPA has a plausible interpretation of the language, but that's far from a clear statement. So in some ways, this is a, another version of the, clean, of the clear statement rule, that in a case like this one, where there's a major question at issue, um, we expect Congress to have to speak clearly before an agency has that authority. Thanks, Jeff. And actually, since I have you here, um, let's look at the implications of the case, and specifically as it relates to greenhouse gas regulation. Jeff, what do you think the case means for further greenhouse gas regulations by the EPA and other agencies? And what do you think it means for EPA regulation in general? You, you know, um, the, the thing that I I think is, at least to me, interesting about this is that the EPA had already gotten this signal, right? As you may remember, the Supreme Court, even before the Trump administration stepped in to stay the Clean Power Plan, and so they, they were not planning to do another version of the Clean Power Plan. They, they, they I think they had learned their lesson and they were going to be much more circumspect. Um, so I, I don't know in terms of what EPA's plans were, were going to be that this changes them all that much. Um, uh, but I do think this has significant implications. And we can talk about other specific statutory issues and other statutory programs. But I think, you know, the Biden and the EPA, as much as they would like to have done this, I think they were not planning to do it because they knew it wouldn't stand up in the Supreme Court. But I think you have. Um, big issues about other parts of the Biden agenda. You know, they've talked about wanting to make climate change a whole of government effort. And so you see such things as Biden appointees at the SEC who want to use the securities laws as a way to force, you know, companies to account for their all their greenhouse gas emissions and to put public pressure on them. You see the FERC, um, which is supposed to be uh, uh, authorizing natural gas pipelines and based on the public interest. And what the public interest has always meant for 40 years is, you know, to look at the economic interests and whether, you know, there's there's a there's a demand for this natural gas. And now the Biden appointees are saying, well, you know, something before we can decide a pipeline is in the public interest, we need to consider the climate change impacts. So I think that this ruling may actually have more impact in some of these other agencies that are trying to go beyond what Congress ever intended so that they can play a role in this whole climate change effort. So, so Katie, what's your take? I would say to tag team a little bit of, off of what Jeff was just saying, I, I do think there are implications for uh, agencies beyond the EPA, but if you just look at EPA, um, certainly they can still regulate greenhouse gases from individual plants, um, but you also look at uh, ground-level ozone regulations, particulate matter regulations. That's another way of getting at what I think the EPA was trying to do with uh, pushing down greenhouse gas emissions from the electricity sector. And then you know, I just want to also bring up the role of states here. States responded to uh, the decision last week in very different ways, and certainly there was a contingent of states that said, all right, we will pick up the work of uh, what the EPA was trying to do. So th there's definitely a lot of play at the state level on this policy question of greenhouse gas emissions from the electricity sector. Well, Katie, since we're talking to you right now, um, you recently wrote uh, an excellent piece in the Daily Signal where you highlight the importance of electricity to daily life. 
and, w- and why major decisions affecting the energy sector should be m- made by elected officials, and not bureaucrats. So we've kind of talked about this. Can you just explain a little bit more? About your take on that? Yeah, thanks. Um, so, you know, I, as I mentioned earlier, if you just think about your day and when electricity came into play, you don't get very far into your day before you use electricity. And so I think what I was trying to get at with the piece is just to help all of us uh, appreciate, again, what we take so often for granted, which is how much energy plays into our health, our well-being, our economic opportunities, um, our education there's a lot that happens in between me plugging something into the wall and the, the many steps of infrastructure and policy that come into play that make all that work. Um, and what EPA did here was basically elevate one aspect of the grid, that is greenhouse gas emissions, at the expense of all of these other uh, issues and trade-offs, things like affordability and reliability. And that's why I think uh, many of these questions really need to be handled by elected officials, people who represent the interests, uh, well-being, the trade-offs that Americans want to make, as opposed to uh, unelected bureaucrats who have oftentimes one myopic, narrow vision in mind of what they're trying to accomplish with policy. In this case, the EPA had greenhouse gas emissions in mind to the uh cost of many other things that feed into a functioning grid so that when I flip the light switch on, something actually happens. So the a big theme of the case is not necessarily whether a policy is sound or not, um, but who should make the policy decision. So, so Paul, I've read a, a lot recently uh, after the case complaining that the Supreme Court won't allow the EPA to achieve the Biden administration's climate change agenda. How would you respond to this? You know, because of this case, this is going to stop them from achieving the agenda. Well, the case isn't going to stop the Biden agenda from achieving its goals on climate, but it just has to go through Congress to do so. I mean, it's settled law that agencies have only whatever authority Congress gives. Majority of the Supreme Court said that Congress did not give the EPA broad regulatory authority to do whatever it thinks is best to deal with climate change. It said this statute doesn't and Congress needs to give it to him. So Biden just needs to go to Congress. Now, that he may not be able to get what he wants from Congress, but that's just part of the democratic process. That's the way it works. You win some, you lose some. And sometimes uh, everybody negotiates a compromise and everybody gets a little and loses a little. He could have done that here. He could have done that in the past. He just didn't want to do that. He didn't want to go to Congress because he didn't want to give things up. He wants everything that he wants and he uses agencies to do it. And that's not the way the law works. So, Paul, let me, you know, people complain a lot about gridlock in, in D.C. and they talk, they complain about the system and but, you know, the, the reality is that's the design of the system. That's the actually intent of the system is you have the House, the Senate, you have the, the executive branch, you have federal and state. Laws are not necessarily meant to be easy to pass. The, the, the objective is, in fact, by design to make sure that the representatives have to kind of negotiate with each other and they represent various constituents. And, and that way you kind of ensure legitimacy of the law and also um, – that there's buy again legitimacy plays into the buy-in for the law. I mean, 
So, so Jeff, how, how would you respond to kind of that point and also just kind of this belief that the, like this kind of this assumption that the, the executive branch should just be able to do whatever it wants. We should rely on the technocrats to do it and forget about what Congress, what the Constitution says about congressional power and lawmaking power. You know, the, the thing that struck me in going back and reading the decisions again is for the majority, this case is, is all about the constitutional separation of powers and, and what it, and how does it work in our Congress, in our, in our constitutional structure. The, on the, the dissent basically started out with two pages of description about how serious the climate crisis is and how urgent it is that we need to act. Um, and, 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 and basically the majority said on these major issues, um, under our constitutional structure, it's the Congress that has to make these. If they're going to delegate something to the agency, they they need to do that clearly. And on the other side, the the dissenters said this issue is so important that we can't we can't wait for Congress. We have to let the experts at EPA do it. And I think it's just a fundamental disconnect about um, the way different people see our constitutional system and. Um, again, I say I say the left is sort of maybe in a lazy way to to encompass that worldview, but it it's pretty striking that um, on the one hand you have people who say these issues are really important, therefore we have to let the executive branch decide how to deal with them. On the other hand, you have a view that no, that's not that's that's not the way the Constitution is supposed to work. You know, I I guess I'm kind of baffled by that thinking, especially by Supreme Court justices. Um, Paul, help me out. What, what's going on? What, what, why would anybody, especially justices, not kind of recognize the most obvious thing about the separation of powers and the fact that the legislature has a lawmaking power? And why kind of assume that because we're trying to reach a policy outcome that, well, because we can't achieve the policy outcome through the the Article One, well, then we'll just forget Article One and we'll just let the executive branch handle it. Well, there are two possible explanations for what's going on. One is that if you like the particular outcome that the agency has adopted, you display less concern about the way that it was authorized to do that. In other words, if you think Congress empowered agencies to go do good, then anything that an environmental agency does that is pro-environment is good, and therefore the agency is empowered to create it. That's one way of looking at the system. But the other way is to look at it and say agencies weren't created by the Constitution. The only thing in the executive branch that was created was the offices of the president and vice president. Uh, And they were given specific powers. And most of their authority comes from statutes Congress passes, not given them by Article 2. So you have to read the statutes and read them honestly to know what it is that people in the executive branch are authorized to do. I mean, the presumption that the uh, framers had when they adopted the Constitution was that most regulation would be done by the states, by the state courts in areas like torts, contracts, criminal law, and by the state legislatures and supplementing whatever the common law was. You know, Congress has an important role. Unfortunately, a lot of congressmen prefer to punt that role over to agencies because from they look at it as a, uh, you know, a win-win. 
if the agency comes up with the right answer, they can say, well, I gave the agency the authority to do that. You know, Biden's famous line, I did that. Uh, on the other hand, if the agency does something that's terrible and the public hates it, members now have somebody to point the finger at. That's not the way the system is supposed to work. We, re we require members of Congress to cast public votes so that we can hold them accountable. Uh, that's what the Constitution was designed to do. Your description of the theory behind the way our government works, uh, and that's the way the system should be interpreted. On the other hand, if you if you don't like the results that it gets to, then you complain that the agency is somehow being hamstrung by the courts. That's what we're hearing. So I'm going to throw a bit of a curveball. I don't know if it's a curveball. We'll see. Um, and, 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 and that is, you know, a lot of people complain about and including me, I complain about this, is that there's Congress delegates away its lawmaking power. But in this case, and in some other cases that the court cites in the West Virginia versus EPA opinion, such as the tobacco case where the FDA wanted to kind of regulate tobacco without the authority, I don't think Congress was delegating anything. I think that one of the things that's so strong about, what's so compelling about the this case, the major questions types of cases, is that really what's happening is the agencies actually going against the actual will of Congress, and the Congress never delegated the power. So this is almost not really even a delegation issue, so much as the kind of the agency is kind of going way above, way beyond what Congress ever intended, not only through the plain language of the statute, but even the intent. So I'm just wondering if Jeff or Paul, you have any thoughts on that? I don't view this as a non-delegation case, because, you know, if... If if the Congress had given EPA authority to to restructure the power sector, then then you might have a non delegation issue. You would have to you know were there intelligible principles? Did they? But but here it, it wasn't that they delegated legislative authority. It's that they never delegated this authority at all. Um, so you know there's certainly overtones of the non delegation doctrine and the major questions doctrine. But in this case and in some of the others. You know, it's just really a way of, of interpreting statutes and saying, look, at on these major issues, the first question is, you know, not whether it's non, whether it's a delegable um, uh, authority. The question is, did Congress intend, intend this at all? And for these major issues, Congress has to speak clearly if that's what they want to do. Paul, go ahead. You wanted to say something? Yeah, no, I, I agree with you and with Jeff. A statute that told the EPA, go make the world a better place, raises a delegation issue uh, because it, it gives them absolutely no restraint on what they can do. In this case, the agency took the term, you know, system for emission reduction and said we're in, entitled to interpret that term, not just simply on a factory by factory basis, but on a sector by sector basis. And the green sector emits fewer particles of pollution into the air, so we're going to prefer that. And the Supreme Court said, no, that's not what that term in the statute means. This is a statutory interpretation case, not a non-delegation doctrine case. Well, and just to underscore what both of you said, you know, multiple times Congress has uh, rejected similar cap-and-trade bills. Um, and then following uh, Massachusetts versus EPA, there were several, I think, quite extensive hearings on what is our role, Congress, following this decision, and EPA had yet to regulate. And you, you see and you read those uh, discussions, 
and multiple times Congress was saying, we don't want to do this. We don't want to put this kind of burden on the American people by way of the energy sector. So to me, there's quite a lot of uh, detail in between Mass versus EPA and West Virginia versus EPA showing very much that Congress did not want to uh, give over this power to the EPA. Okay, I'm glad you brought that up. It's one of the... um, So one thing I recommend for the listeners is read the Justice Gorsuch's concurrence. I think it kind of explains a little bit more about the major questions doctrine. Because there's certain factors that go into play, like if an agency doesn't have expertise on a particular issue, that kind of lends... It kind of... The court has further skepticism about whether or not Congress actually intended for the agency to to issue a regulation on the on the given issue, or what you just say, Katie. Where if if Congress can, if there's been an ongoing dispute in Congress itself, it can't even resolve it. Kind of a good indication that maybe the agency is just doing an end run around Congress. So there's multiple factors that the Gorsuch goes through and others have gone through, kind of lend itself to show that really the major questions action should kick in. Um, so as we wrap up, what are a few key takeaways that you think listeners should take with them? about West Virginia versus EPA. And Jeff, let's start with you. Well, you know, I, I, I have a thought that I, I don't think people are talking about very much. Um, and that is, I think this is ultimately very healthy for the democracy because for the last 10 years, um, I, I, there has been an interest, certainly in the business community and, and, and others, to have some kind of climate change legislation to bring some certainty to this issue. And I, we won't go into all the different ways in which, you know, federal and government agencies are, you know, putting pressure on, on companies and, and companies would like to have um, uh, some certainty about the future of, of, you know, this sector and how fast they need to reduce their CO2 emissions. And they would be interested in engaging in that debate. And, and I think there are some Republicans who would be willing to sit down and think about the compromises you need to make to, to have legislation. But as long as the environmental groups feel like they can get everything they want through, through EPA, they have no incentive to engage in that debate. And so now that it's clear that the EPA is not going to be able to step in and do everything that the, that the environmental groups want, maybe this will actually force people to have the kind of discussions that ultimately could lead to legislation. Thanks, Jeff. Paul, some key takeaways? Let me give you two. Uh, the first is there is an inverse relationship between the scope of an agency's regulatory efforts uh, and the specificity of what uh, they need to point to. Uh, in the past, what has happened was they could point to general language and they have to give a good reason for it. Now they have to point to far more specific language. Uh, so if you want a broad reach, it, it can't be uh, an inverse relationship. You want a broad reach, then you have to have especially clear language in the statute. Secondly, I think this also applies in all sorts of other areas. Uh, Jeff mentioned the SEC. I think that's right. Uh, Anytime an agency gets out of its assigned lane or tries to push the extent of the authority it has, even in its assigned lane, it's going to have to point to fairly clear language. I mean, you know, the 
securities laws were passed in the middle of the Great Depression, at least, you know, the original ones. Uh, I don't think the Congress intended the Securities and Exchange Commission in the 1930s to regulate climate change. Uh, I think they would have Congress would have interpreted the term climate change to mean the change from summer to fall to winter to spring. Uh, So uh, I think the half life of the SEC's uh, climate rules is uh, rather short. Yeah, I agree with you on that one. And Katie, what are some key takeaways? Uh, Well, I, I guess I'll give you three quick ones. One, I think this is good for anybody paying an electricity bill or who is worried about the reliability of the grid because now EPA has uh, some restrictions on what they can do um, to meddle in that area. Second, you know, I think um, is just to emphasize the important role of states and their role in defending a limited constitutional government um, against legislation by way of regulation. Um, And then third, I really like what Jeff said about this being a healthy decision, uh, healthy for the uh, republic and constitutional government that, you know, regardless of what you think about global warming and the need or not to regulate greenhouse gas emissions, um, I think Americans should be encouraged by this decision because it defended what we all claim um, are the rules of the road, that this system of constitutional government is what holds us together. And so essentially, I think the court did what it was supposed to do in defending policy being made by Americans elected representatives rather than a symbolic king in the White House, no matter what party, um, or their agents in the bureaucracy. So to me, this is a very uh, healthy constitutional decision, no matter where you fall on the climate issue. Jeff, Paul, and Katie, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Darren Baxt, Senior Research Fellow, Environmental Policy and Regulation at the Heritage Foundation. And of course, I want to thank all of you who are listening to our program and hope you've enjoyed the debut of the Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment's PowerCast. Please tell your family, friends, and colleagues about the PowerCast. And be on the lookout for the next edition of the PowerCast coming out in two weeks. Thank you again.